All right, we'll be in 2 Kings chapter number 12. 2 Kings chapter number 12. Now, last week, I uh, I, kind of introduced the sermon by saying I was going to tell you a lot of history and have a very short sermon, and somebody told me, you didn't get into as much history as I as I thought you would. Well, I don't know. We'll try it this week because I've got a very similar deal on a thought that I've wanted to speak on for a while, uh, kind of a topic from the the, 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 the Kings and Chronicles. Um, so we're, we're going to go through here and talk about some Bible history and, and some different things. And uh, like I said, we may be long on history with a, with a, with a kind of a short sermon on the end because I, I want to explain the basis for what I'm going to say, and it's going to take me a little while. Just kept getting longer and longer setting that up. So I hope you'll follow off me. We're, I'm going to jump around, look at a lot of scripture. Um, I'll just I'm going to kind of rattle off a lot of things. So if you take notes or if you want me to, I'll give you a copy of this. Um, in fact, any of these, you ever want to copy any of these? I'll, I'll give you my notes. I, I don't care. Just ignore all the misspellings and things like that. But if you ever want to see all the references and things, but Second Kings chapter number twelve. We, uh, we, we begin here with the story of uh, the beginning of one of the, the good kings of Judah and the, the beginning of his reign. And it says, in the seventh year of Jehu, he was the, the king of the northern kingdom, Jehoash, and sometimes that's spelled Joash. It's either Jehoash or Joash. It's spelled both ways. Began to reign. In 40 years reigned he in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada, I always have trouble saying that one, the, the, the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Now I'm fascinated by the various mechanics of, of Bible interpretation. It's uh, if you if you get in or you want to look a book or something like that, it's called hermeneutics. That's the technical name for it. It's hermeneutics. Um, but the way that you view God and His Word drastically affects how you interpret the Scriptures. To an atheist, the Bible is a, is just a collection of fairy tales and forgeries. To the agnostic, the Bible might be of value, but you just don't know because you don't know anything. That's what agnostic means. means. I don't know. To the skeptic, the Bible is a mass of contradictions and and problems. To the historian, uh, the Bible is a historical record and glimpse into the lives and thoughts of the ancient world. To the philosopher, the Bible is yet just another way to view the world equal to to men like Socrates or Aristotle or Plato or these guys. But to the child of God, the Bible is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I firmly believe that the almighty and infinite God gave to us in Scripture the truths that His limitless wisdom knew we needed. That's key. The Almighty and Infinite God gave to us in Scripture the truths His limitless wisdom knew that we needed to know. It's called revelation, if you want to get into theological terms, that God revealed that which we could not know. Let me go a step further. I firmly believe that the Almighty and Infinite God inspired, if you go to 2 Timothy 3.16, 
it talks about all all scripture is inspired by God, given by inspiration. In the Greek, it's one of my favorite little Greek things. There is that it says it's literally God breathed, that God spoke it, that when He inspired the words of the Bible, not just the thoughts or the ideas, but the very words that were written by His chosen instruments. It's called inspiration. I believe it's verbal, the very words. I believe it's plenary, that it's full. All of it is 100% God's Word. I'll go a step further than that. Too many, too, too many today question whether those fully inspired words can be known today. I believe they can. That's called preservation. I firmly believe that the Almighty and Infinite God not only revealed truth to us, and fully inspired the transmission of the very words of the truth, but that the same almighty and infinite God has kept that body of truth safe and secure and unblemished through the centuries. That's how much faith I have in God and His Word. The Bible does not just contain God's Word. That means some of it may not be God's Word. The Bible is not lost to history and has to be recreated or remanufactured by mankind. Someone will say, well, well, what about this old copy? Or, well, Dr. So-and-so says this. And I tell you what, too many people have been taught to look at this the wrong way. If the history of the various texts and translations tell us anything, it's not that we should question what the Bible says. It instead proves how reliable and accurate the transmission of God's Word has been through the centuries. There's a side note on that. When they found those Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 50s and 60s, Somebody said, oh, this proves that uh, you know what we have isn't right. No, what it proved is what we have is very, 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 very close, that God had protected His Word. By the way, I do not think I'm a bit out of line by saying that if you can trust God to save your soul for all eternity and never lose you, never forsake you, that He can do the same for His Word. That's too simplistic for many. But you should not have to have a Ph.D. to understand what God told us. Most often the problem we have is not that there is some lost text or mistranslated word in the Bible. It's rather that we do not rightly divide the Word of God. Our finite, limited minds, our imperfect understanding, means that sometimes we misunderstand what the Bible says. J. Frank Norris says, if you find a contradiction in the Scriptures, you are the contradiction. I like that. What I want to show you this morning is something that I'm just now really trying to wrap my head around. And it's something that I think our modern Christian minds, especially our American point of view and the modern culture, we can easily miss. In our text, we read of the king uh, Joash or Jehoash. I'll, I'll probably say both, but it's the same guy, just a little variation. Like saying Matt or Matthew, it's the same guy, just a little bit different spelling. He was crowned king of Judah at the age of seven. It's a fantastic story. I don't have time to get into it. I would love to, but I'm not going to because it's a great story. Overall, he was a good king, at least as long as the high priest Jehoiada Uh, as long as he lived, he was a great influence on this king and helped guide him the right ways. And when he died, he drifted there. Uh, It's in the Chronicles account more than the uh, king's account. 
It says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. So what did this good king do? Well, the first thing that is mentioned here is actually a failure. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. If you chase this out and you look up that word high places, it's, it's a Hebrew word called Bama or Bama. It makes me think of Alabama football team. But anyway, it's a B-A-M-A-H is the way they transliterate in English. And you, you look this up, there's about 100 uses, and you'll see this term keeps popping up. Um, you can look up English, you know, the high places here. Joash's great-great-grandfather, Asa, in Second Chronicles 15, 17. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. Joash's great-grandfather, Jehoshaphat, in 2 Chronicles 20.33, says, Howbeit the high places were not taken away. So these other two kings failed in this. Joash's son, Amaziah, it says in 2 Kings 14.4, Howbeit the high places were not taken away, as yet the people did sacrifice and burnt incense on the high places. Amaziah's son, who's known as either Azariah in Kings or if you go to Chronicles and Isaiah, he's, he's called Uzziah. It's another one of those variations of the name. But it says in 2 Kings 15.4, Save that the high places were not removed, the people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. Uzziah's son Jotham in 2 Kings 15.35 says, Howbeit the high places were not removed, the people sacrificed and burnt incense still in the high places. In fact, the one king that I found that ever even attempted to address this is the great, 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 great grandson of Joash. I had to write down six times on that so I would remember. And this is um, uh, Josiah in 2 Kings 23, verse 8. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering in of the city of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places came not up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they did eat of the unleavened bread among the brethren. So Josiah is the one king who seems to have addressed this issue. So what are these high places that so many kings failed to address? And it's counted against all these different kings of Judah that they did not remove the high places. What are these things? I told you it's one Hebrew word, uh, Bama or, or Bama. And it can have a few different meanings. It can literally mean a high place, like a mountaintop uh, or on top of a hill, something like that. It just means a high place, very literal. David uses a term like that in uh, 2 Samuel 22:34, and in Psalm 18:33 it says, "He maketh my feet like hinds feet, and setteth me upon my high places, uh, a high level." Second, these are places that could be used in pagan worship. This is probably the meaning of the word that I know I would assume. Well, this isn't the temple, this isn't the tabernacle. This must be pagan worship. Historians tell us it was common practice in the ancient world for uh, the pagan idolaters and polytheists and all these people to dedicate a high spot on a hill as a place to, uh, to worship their false gods. Um, and actually the first use of this word means that in Leviticus 26.30. 
And God says, And I will destroy your high places and cut down your images, that's your idols, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. That's a very fun language in that. But third, and most overlooked in this, these places could be for worshiping the true God of Israel outside of the tabernacle or temple. Look at the case of Samuel, the great prophet priest. I think if anybody knew how to worship God right, it probably would have been Samuel. But in 1 Samuel chapter number 9, we have the story of when Saul is looking for his lost donkeys, and he says, hey, there's a seer, there's a man of God over there. Uh, we go ask him. He'll, he'll know where the donkeys are. And as he goes into the city looking, and by the way, he doesn't even know, even though he lives just a few miles away from Samuel, he doesn't know who Samuel is, doesn't even know his name. He just That shows you his religious nature about, right there. But as he goes into the city, this is what the people tell him in 1 Samuel 9, 12, and 13. And they answer him and said, He is. I asked, is he here? He says, He is. Behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city. For there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as ye be come into the city, ye shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice, and afterwards they eat they, they, uh, they eat that be bidden. Now therefore get you up anyways. But, but it's talking about Samuel at this place, at a high place, offering a sacrifice. So this is a third possibility for this term. And there's a couple other lesser ones, but those are kind of your three main possibilities with what this word means. So which one of these is the kind of high place that the kings failed to remove? It's definitely not just talking about hilltops. I've been in uh, you know the mountains of Kentucky and West Virginia where they do that, like what's it called, like strip mining and stuff like that, and they'll just start at the top of the mountain and just take the whole mountain down till it's flat. That's not what this is talking about at all. It could be talking about pagan worship. It could, but I, I don't think it is. I think it actually is the third option that these were places people were trying to worship God on their own. For example. The story of King Asa in 2 Chronicles 15 differentiates between the high places uh, that he did not destroy and the idolatry that he did destroy. He did destroy the idolatry, but he left the high places. 2 Chronicles 15, uh, verse 15 uh, through 17. And all Judah, there's actual revival. It's another one of those things I wish I had more time to get into. There's a big revival that goes on right here. And it says, and all Judah rejoiced at the oath that they would uh, they, they made a new covenant that they would serve God. For they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their desire. This sounds like some people on fire for God. We're going to fully serve God. They're dedicated. They're surrendered. And he was found of them. The Lord gave them rest round about. And also concerning Maacah, uh, that's another fun one to say, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burned it in the brook Kidron. Sounds like somebody who does not like idols. He kicked his own mother out of office and burned her idol. Okay? Verse 17, But the high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. A king that would remove his own mother from power because of her idolatry, a king that would destroy his own mother's idol, that kind of king is not one to purposely let pagan high places be scattered throughout the land. 
the people in their zeal for the revival would not have allowed pagan high places to remain. I contend the type of high place that the kings of Judah continually failed to remove were not places of pagan worship, but of worshiping the true God. Why then would God hold it against the kings for not removing places dedicated to his worship? That's a whole other ballgame you got to think about here. Before the Exodus, this is what you uh, you might call um, decentralized worship. I'm going to use talk about decentralized and centralized worship. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and whoever else before Exodus, when they would build an altar, it was at different places. It was at need. It was at a special place. They would build an altar and worship God. It's just wherever. But this changes at Mount Sinai when the, with the construction of the tabernacle. And it's clear that God had established one place and one altar for Israel in the tabernacle and then its successor in the temple. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, I think make this very clear. Because it tells us if someone were to uh, offer a sacrifice without utilizing the tabernacle, that they were to be cut off from among his people. It's some very uh, hard language on this. One God, one tabernacle, one altar. This is centralized worship. Deuteronomy chapter number 12. There's a promise that is made here that God tells His people that once they get through the desert and they get into the promised land, He's going to choose one place for them to worship. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse number 10. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when He giveth you rest from all the enemies round about you, so, so that you dwell safely, so, so when you're in the land, when you have peace, when you know, the land's conquered, you're safely in the promised land. Verse 11. Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause His name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maid servants and the Levite that was within your gates, forasmuch as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. This is again centralized worship. One God, one place, one altar. But then when we keep going forward into Israel's history, we get to the book of Judges and the anarchy of the civil and, and religious things in Israel is just, that's the rule of the day. It's, it's chaotic. There's no real right in the land. There we find the people turning again to decentralized worship. They didn't just go to the tabernacle. They started doing their own things again. People were worshiping God according to their own wills and not God's. People ignored the mandates of the Mosaic Law. No doubt this is because, and they're seeing what the pagan people around them are doing, and they're copying it. The status quo when Samuel ministered was this decentralized worship. It gets even messier when, uh, when the ark is lost to the Philistines, when Eli's sons took it into battle and the Philistines captured it. And then from that point on, even after David brings it back uh, to Jerusalem, it's never put back into the tabernacle. 
the next place it goes is into the temple. It's a, it's a really, really strange thing. I'm still wrapping my head around some of that. But David sought, and I think he's very motivated by Deuteronomy chapter number 12. It says, when you're in the land, when you have peace. David says, we're in the land. We got peace. Let me build a temple. Let's have this centralized worship. Well, David wasn't allowed to do that. His son Solomon was the one who was allowed to build the place, the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Centralized worship should have become the norm. They should have rejected all the other high places. They should have flocked to this one place. But it didn't happen. Solomon himself used high places to worship. When the kingdom split under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the first thing that Jeroboam in the northern kingdom did was he established his own places of worship in Dan and in Bethel. There they sought to worship God through the proxy of idols of golden calves. We talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago. I'm convinced that they thought they were truly trying to serve God. Uh, at least some of them did. You go read the prophets. Go read Hosea. He doesn't say, hey, quit worshiping your golden... He says, you're not worshiping God right. Go, you know, say, go read any of the prophets to the northern kingdom and you'll see that. Between the time of Solomon, who tried to reestablish centralized worship but failed, and King Josiah, who finally tried to destroy the high places dedicated to God and thus reestablish re centralized worship, it's a period of about 350 years. Okay? This is a long period in Israel's history. Okay? You're still awake, still with me. I know this is, I'm like flying through a whole bunch of stuff. But I want you to understand this concept because I want to bring it in a little closer to today. In John chapter number 4, there's a new paradigm concerning worship that is revealed. The Samaritan woman interacting with Christ. She said, oh, I know, you're one of those Jews. You're here to tell me we shouldn't worship over there in Mount Gerizim. We should be going down to Jerusalem to the, to the, to the temple. and uh, That's what this is all about. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither uh, in this mountain nor yet Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. Ye, we know that what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We're no longer bound to worship God in one geographic place. We don't have to hop on a jet, fly to Jerusalem. I really wouldn't want to do that right now anyway. But we don't have to go to that place and worship in one place. It's a dramatic shift. It's infinitely better. And though we do not have a centralized place of worship, we do not have a decentralized worship. Our worship has something to center on. What's it centered on? Spirit and truth. The question I pose this morning is this. Do we still have high places in our lives, in our worship? I believe we do. It's not about a mountaintop or you know, a place, a personal or communal uh, worship space. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. It's about worshiping God on our terms. That's what those people doing in those high places, they said, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what's right. It's easier for me just to go across the road over here than go to Jerusalem. 
it's easier for me to go over here and do this than to go do exactly what the Scripture commanded them to do. This is about breaking away from the foundation of truth and doing our own thing. To me, the decentralized worship in the Old Testament that God condemned is the essence of the problem from the days of the judges where it says every man did that which was right. How? In his own eyes. We have to be careful because it is part of our humanity, part of our pride, that we assume that what we do is right. We just assume whatever we do is right. Proverbs chapter number 12, verse number 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Proverbs 21, verse 2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. What is the answer? How are we supposed to worship? There's not the one centralized place we worship. But what there is, is there is truth. There is truth. This is what we center ourselves on. We seek the bedrock truth of God. We rally around the cross of Christ. I was thinking about this, and I'm going to tell you, historically, you look back, no nation in the history of this earth can succeed without unity in its culture and in its purpose. No business can succeed without unity in its vision and purpose. Apple today is worth you know billions, trillions of dollars. If suddenly they decided, you know what, let's start making toasters. And let's start making, uh, we'll start making guitars. If they started, it takes away from their purpose, their vision, their drive, their specialty. The companies that do that often fail. Companies need a one drive, one purpose. No church can succeed without unity in its purpose, in its doctrines, in its uh, operating philosophies. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as is in all churches of the saints. See, what we have to do, we have to avoid the temptation to say, I'm going to do what I want to do over here. I'm going to worship this. And, and by the way, a lot of these people, I think, are doing both in the Old Testament. They've got their high place over here, but then they'll come back over to the tabernacle. It's, it's a weird mix of both. It, it gets really strange. It's hard for us in our modern mind to comprehend some of this stuff. What we have to do in our minds and in our hearts, we seek God's will, and we must centralize our worship, our faith, not on ourselves, but on spirit and truth. We must not seek our own interests to the detriment of the body of believers. There's a lot of things said nowadays talking about unity and things. Well, diversity, diversity doesn't unify. Diversity divides. You have to have one goal, one purpose. And by the way, you start with the cross. You start with Christ. You start with God's Word. And you align on those pole stars to give you the direction and you move forward. We must cast down the high places that we create in our hearts and lives. The ways that we selfishly try to serve God. 
you ever spoke to somebody and they'll talk about uh, talk about their faith and they'll say, oh, well, I've got a deal worked out with the man upstairs. Uh, well, if you did, you wouldn't call him the man upstairs, I'll tell you that. You'd have a lot more respect for God if you knew who he really was. And by the way, he doesn't cut personal deals. He's already made the deal. He says, you're a sinner. Here's the offer. You're going to go to hell unless you believe on Christ. You better accept him. That is, that's the deal God makes everybody. The ways that we self, the ways, and by the way, this too, I mentioned this very briefly, but why were they doing this? You know what they were doing? They were copying the pagan worship. They were copying the pagan worship. They were letting an outside influence influence their worship. So we have to be careful that the things that we do, we're not just copying. And by the way, you can even copy good things. Heard once about the, the, the guys taking the test and the teacher called for him and says, okay, little Timmy, you were cheating. He says, I wasn't cheating. He says, yes, you were. Said the guy next to you, uh, the question said, you know, had the question, essay question. He wrote, I don't know. And Timmy wrote, I don't either. Uh, you, know, you, you can copy some things and you might even copy the right thing and copy that paper and even put the other person's name on your paper. You know, you could, you could do these things. But the problem is it's not personal. And the bigger problem is, is, especially if you're copying somebody who's already wrong. If you're copying somebody who's wrong, you're in trouble because you're wrong too. We must unite our hearts as a church body that is also seeking, or those, yeah, we must unite our hearts with a church body that is also seeking to worship in spirit and in truth. I'm firmly convinced, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I'm firmly convinced that God never intended for Christianity to be practiced individually, or I, I, I call it lone wolf. You're out on your own trying to worship God. Christianity is designed by God to need a body, a church to belong to. You need a church. We all need a family to belong to. Here's my message. Very simple. Get in, get on board, and get busy. And as musicians come, I'll say this was much love, and I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. We've got a lot of great churches in our area. I am so very thankful. We support these missionaries going to places. Jason Mann, if he were here, he'd tell you there's no really good gospel witness in North Macedonia, an entire country, without a solid gospel witness. You think about that. And we, live in a, we live in a county. we got dozens of churches that will tell you the truth about the gospel. We may differ on some of that, but they'll tell you the truth about the gospel. I'm thankful for that. But also, no, not one church is for everybody. And I mean this, bottom of my heart. If, if, if this is not the place where you can grow and you can... Listen, I'll help. I will help find a place you can grow. I will do my best to put you in a place that you can grow and you can follow. I, I for I, I, I'm just being honest. I, I, I recommend people to other churches too. I'm not just all about everybody. Not, we're not the perfect place for everybody. It's not one size fits all. I'd love to have some people come here. I just know there's places that would be better fits for folks. And, and I, I'm, I don't have a problem. Several. No wonder our church ain't growing. You're saying everybody else. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Guys, we got a lot, we're, we're a lot of folks here. We got a lot of different churches. We got a lot of good folks. And we're all moving the same direction in a lot of ways. We're all trying to serve God. And 
you need to get in somewhere you can be. If it's here, I'd love it. If it's somewhere else, I'd love it. Just We need to all get in, get in, get on board, and get busy. By the way, I would rather shake your hand in heaven than shake it in church every week. The greater need is not just getting people in church. That's secondary. Actually, maybe third or fourth down the line. Most important thing is the gospel. Do you know Christ? That's the most important thing. Because if you don't get that box checked, nothing else matters. You can go to church, you can be faithful, you can never miss a service, but if you don't know Christ, it doesn't matter. Do you know Him? We'll figure out the rest of it once we get that taken care of. Do you know Him? If you'll stand, please. We'll have a time of invitation here this morning. What number, Owen? 108 in the heavenly highways. 108 in the heavenly highways. And let's pray and we'll have a time of invitation. Heavenly Father, Lord, different message here this morning. I hope it comes out and makes as much sense as it does in my head. But Lord, reading all this, uh, the history of Israel, the faults, the, 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 the successes, so many lessons we can learn. And, and this idea about looking at how they worship, the things they did right, the things they did wrong, uh, fascinates me. And Lord, I think there is something to be learned from the fact that these, these high places existed and God did not want them to. I think it's something we can learn in our own lives. And, and I firmly believe it has to do with putting our will above you or, or, or trying to serve you selfishly or uh, just serving you on our terms, Lord. These are great dangers. Let us, first off, know you. Let us get to know you. Let us know your word. And let us do our best, even in our mortal fallibility, to move forward, trusting and believing, being guided by your word, by your truth. Lord, a simple challenge here this morning just to keep moving forward in what is right, to keep moving forward in our life. Thank you for the majesty of your word. Thank you for the reliability. Thank you for how even these, even the history books in here have such profound application for us. Challenge our hearts, I pray, with this message in thy holy name. Amen.